Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast of everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Frank Washcook. I'm filling in for our usual host, Steve Barrett, this week, and I have an exceptional co-host on board with me. That's Diana Bradley. How are you, Diana? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And, of course, we call this the podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. But this week, we have a guest from somewhat outside that realm, and that's John Lamont. He is the CEO, founder, and executive creative director of the Mustache Agency. John, welcome. Nice to meet you guys. So to start out, how are you and your team holding up as we hit month five of working from home? Yeah, um, you know, I think on the whole, pretty well. Uh, you know, it's been a, bit, a mixed bag of experiences as we've uh, shifted to work from home. Um, but, you know, I will say there was sort of broad, um, you know, once we got past, obviously, some of the fear and the uncertainty uh, surrounding the virus, there was pretty good appetite for working from home uh, and the freedom and liberty uh, that it provided. And, you know, some of the mustaches scattered. <laughs> uh, th- throughout the country, uh, people are in Seattle, Switzerland, Sweden. I mean, just all over the globe, wherever they wanted to be, really. So, um, yeah, I think we've I, I've been focused a little bit more on some of the positives of the experience, and and then also for our business and how we operate. A lot of learnings, a lot of new tools we're using, um, and um, uh, I think a lot of long term. Uh, good will will result from you know what is obviously at its core a tragedy so um, obviously like all of us in new york you guys are still you know almost entirely working from home if not entirely um what are some of the learnings that that you've seen as a result of you know just trying to make everything work i mean it's one thing for us we're we're producing content mostly printed online content you can do that from afar pretty easily but in the creative world i'd assume there's a bit more in-person action that has to happen, whether it's directing people or things like that? Yeah, well, I will say one of my learnings is uh, as a small business owner, I'll admit I always had an element of, um, I need to keep my eye on everyone. Is everyone really going to work if I turn away? Um, And, you know, I think that's a paranoia just born of of fear. And uh, the truth is they will. Everyone's serious professionals and they have careers and they care about the work um, and uh, they need no uh, babysitting, handholding or supervision, I think, to take their job seriously. And so, it, you know, some of some of those thoughts that I had, I'm embarrassed by now, but I, I uh, of now, but I, I realized, well, that's that's that itself is a sea change. And then it's a bit inspiring uh, to see, um, you know, I think mostly we've gotten more efficient, really questioned workflows. Do we need all these meetings? Um, how can we more efficiently attack a problem? Um, the only area that has been challenging is production itself. Um, but that, that we could do a whole podcast on how production has shifted and the opportunities. It, it, there's also a lot of, I don't want to seem too Pollyannish here, but a, a lot of silver linings in the way we're re-examining the need for video production and ways of doing video production and creating content. But that's that's certainly been the biggest impact, like creative mm-hmm. strategy, account management. You know, a lot of our core services can be done anywhere, but production, you all need to, well, traditionally, we all needed to be together. 
Right, right. So take us back about 10 years now. And what's the story of Mustache Agency? Why why did you find why did you found it? And and what was the kind of the hole that you saw in the marketplace that you thought you could fill? Yeah, well, I mean, it was found of an element of um, personal desperation. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> I, uh, I had I had gone through two uh, careers. Uh, one, I started as a lawyer. I was an entertainment lawyer. Um, in the film business um, and um, really found that that was not well suited to me or my personality. Um, then I was a film producer um, and had made um, maybe seven or eight um, independent films, the type of things that would go to Sundance and South by South West and so on. Um, and um, that business had changed and had never really taken off. So, you know, I sort of had to figure out, like, where was my opportunity? What skills did I have that I thought, you know, someone might value? Um, and um, it felt like advertising, content creation, uh, video production were uh, adjacent businesses that I, I might be well suited for. Um, in terms of the market opportunity, you know, I started by working at a, a digital agency in the late aughts. It was like 2008, I think, 2009. And uh, they were doing a lot of PR-related uh, uh, content communications, a lot of support for, like, events and celebrity activations. Um, and that certainly opened my eyes to the emerging worlds of social and digital and content. Um, and I, I think the conviction that was born of that experience was that um, brands, um, uh, the most important thing a brand could be doing as it defines itself is connecting with its audiences authentically. Um, and the best way to do that is through honest, compelling content. And, you know, it was a convergence of like, okay, I can put together a team that's good at storytelling and content. You know, my background in the film business is well suited for that in some ways. Um, and that is just what people need. Um, so um, launched the business and in 2010, you know, it was, it was just me in the beginning and some business cards. Uh, I had a, a friend from the prior agency that came on a few months later named Todd Griffin. Um, and we just started contacting uh, clients one by one, seeing if we can get meetings and talking about storytelling. And so 10 years later, you have a lot of industry accolades. You have uh, what's defined as a you know, young, diverse staff in Brooklyn. Um, it, it, how do you how do you ideate, so to speak? I mean, do you find that you're most often coming up with the ideas, or is are the ideas coming from the client? You know, are are you bringing things to them, or are they defining what they want to you? Well, it happens many different ways, um, but I would say by and large, um, the client comes to us with a problem um, or a goal, a set of objectives. Um, you know, we work with a lot of um, digitally native brands and clients um, that are brought to us in part through our relationships with Google, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. Um, so they're often very smart brands that have really good insights about their audience um, and the platforms uh, that they're on and, um, and a clear set of objectives. Um, but usually the creative comes from us as an agency rooted in lots of conversations with the clients, sometimes inspired by, um, uh, by uh, insights that the clients have, um, often workshop with the clients. So there's definitely a collaborative process. 
Um, but we have a pretty uh, hefty and talented creative team that in the end is typically generating the campaigns that we run. Mm -hmm. Tell us about something that you've worked on uh, during the pandemic that has really made a splash. I saw I saw on your Twitter feed that you you have an activation that's called um, sort of an ode to armpits. Tell us about that one or another one that you think has caught the eye over the past couple of months. Yeah, sure. I think native the ode to armpits, uh, awkward as that sounds, is a, is a good uh, a good case study to talk about. In part because it, it was very responsive to what was going on with COVID. Um, you know, we we uh, started talking about that campaign in March and really developed a creative for that campaign in March, just as the world was blowing up, and shot it sometime in April or May, give or take a couple of weeks. So it was really like the red hot center, and I, I think it really um, speaks to the importance of speaking to your audience and what's happening in the world. Um, but not necessarily, you know, a lot of people um, think that creating content for COVID, you have to be compassionate. And I do think that's true. But, you know, it's not about popping mask on characters or, uh, you know, just an ode to healthcare workers, because I think that kind of content got very familiar and very forced very quickly. Um, you need something of a little bit, uh, you need something of a more interesting insight to, to hook onto. And I, I think what our creative team, uh, Brittany Crosshaw is our creative director, one of our creative directors, and she developed the campaign. And she had the insight that um, at a time of isolation where everyone's isolated at home with their families, um, personal contact, connection, physical connection, cuddling uh, were really important. You know, we were all in our homes together, you know, uh, cuddling with our families. And in some ways, the underarm, the armpit, um, is the key nook in which a lot of that, that cuddling uh, happens. And Native happens to have a product that um, facilitates that because it's all natural, so you can feel good about getting your, your family right in there, um, and because it's effective, so you smell good. Um, so it, it, it was a set of insights and a, a real sort of uh, meditation on COVID and where people were at that led us to the uh, to the campaign. Um, and uh, um, it was very resonant. I'll say one more thing that's really interesting about that campaign is uh, that, you know, we also had to adapt to how to shoot that in um, uh, a COVID environment. And uh, again, another thought or insight that we had that I think was key is that, um, you know, people really don't want the... You don't want to see a lot of masks, Zoom calls of their day-to-day -day realities. So, you know, we felt, and this was mostly intuitive at the time, that, you know, people didn't necessarily want something that was too on the nose, too bleak, too much reality. They still wanted something that felt like good storytelling and commercial quality. So the team had to come up with a way to shoot this remotely um, in a way that felt commercial quality. Um, and they came up with a a brilliant plan that included remote uh, uh, casting, location scouting. Um, you know, we strategically, we had to cast real families that were already living together um, because we didn't want to expose strangers to each other. Um, and then moreover, we didn't want to expose the cast to a crew or vice versa. <clears throat> so we had to find casts that could shoot themselves, not only um, uh, know how to set up rigging for a camera and lighting, but how to uh, uh, do everything from 
um, uh, 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 establishing the workflow and uh, setting up the house um, for uh, from a set design perspective. So uh, it was a really interesting casting process. It, we uh, created a lot of like interesting rigging that we would use with uh, uh, iPhones um, so that it felt commercial quality. And also we're fortunate that iPhones, uh, some of the cameras have evolved so, so, so much in the last few years um, and put together something that was completely remote. We created a, a cute little um, BTS video of it. Um, and there was a really good example, too, of how you need to be thinking about earned media when you launch a campaign, um, because the BTS uh, got uh, that was really talking about our approach to production um, got as much uh, buzz and coverage as the campaign did itself. And, and how do you handle that? Do you have an in-house earned media team or do you work with other agencies? No, we have um, we have a, a, a PR company that we use called the Pair Agency. Um, and, uh, we've been with them for a couple of years. It's a, a small and super effective shop and they, they did a really great job. You know, we introduced them to the client in this case, it was PNG brand native. Uh, and, um, you know, they, uh, signed uh, off on, uh, pair leading the charge. And, uh, from there, it really, uh, they did an incredible job for us. Cool. Very cool stuff. So before we get to this quick lightning round that I have planned, I want to get your thoughts on how do you see the marketing industry shaking out as we hopefully uh, in the next six months or a year or whatever the case is, start to come out of this and hopefully come back to normal? How do you see it all changing in the, the world after, so to speak? Well, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about accelerating trends, and I think it's true. Um, you know, our clients were already moving to an environment where they had to put less emphasis on big standalone productions and content, you know, big TV spots uh, towards uh, a 24-7 uh, model of engagement with their consumers, uh, connecting with consumers on multiple platforms all the time with different types of content that's relevant. Um, but it feels like that trend is greatly accelerated and is not going to change. I think, you know, people were considering a break from these big tentpole productions um, that would um, lead to these sort of big heroic 30 second spots. And clearly um, there was a lot of activity around, uh, you know, digital and social content. But now people are really moving away from the production model itself and towards other ways of, um, because it wasn't very efficient um, and it, uh, it, it and cost effective. And so I think there's been a lot more emphasis on uh, post-production, animation, uh, influencer-created content. Like, I, I feel like the, the movement towards those things will just continue to accelerate um, because all COVID did in the end is move a lot of trend lines forward. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Um, okay, let's do a quick lightning round with a, a few different questions. So, number one, are you the only lawyer that you know who's also an executive creative director? <laughs> um, I, I am, uh, but that doesn't mean there's not others out there. You know, ex former lawyers uh, populate the world. We're, we're everywhere. <laughs> we dig beneath the surface a little. Uh, a lot of people who... Um, got out there and realized it wasn't for them. So I'm, I'm, I was, I'm, all, I'm always surprised when I bump into people who uh, have a similar background. It, we're, we're, we're out there greater numbers than you think. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, so what was your go-to workspace at home during quarantine? Well, I have a little office um, in uh, our house and um, I've pretty much, you know, I know a lot of people are kind of moving through. I, you know, I noticed as I Zoom with uh, colleagues and friends, they're all over the house and out in the yard. But um, I've got a nice little nook for myself here, and I've uh, pretty much haven't moved from it for better or worse for six months. <laughs> Fair enough. So, what's what is your go-to work attire then? Well, I've a black t-shirt and some combination of. Uh, I, I think in the in the fall, in the spring it was in the winter it was more uh, pajama pants and now shorts, but pretty rudimentary. You know, it's funny I. Uh, we were actually moving and I, I found a box of all this great summer clothing that I had that was in storage and it felt, you know, a ping of remorse or loss because I'm you know, like, oh, it would be so fun to be wearing these cool summer linen pants again um, <laughs> because pretty much every day is just my black T-shirt um, and my shorts. I'm um, I've, I've also sorry. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to interrupt the lightning round to ask. Um, so you said you're, you're moving, or you were moving. Um, are you moving like due to the pandemic or was that like already planned? No, we were, we were all, we were already planning on moving from Brooklyn to upstate New York. Um, and it's something we had our eyes on. In fact, had bought a house already. Um, the only thing I think that changes the timeline, just like so many things we, um, you know, we were probably planning on moving next year, um, but it just felt like, well, if the year, the last, you know, what was going to be our last year, the last dance, as it were, in Brooklyn, um, was going to be all COVID, um, it, it felt pointless. So we basically moved the timeline up by a year, but it was always the plan. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of us have gotten very used to just wearing black T-shirts and shorts for the past oh, 90 days, 120 days. It's going to be a little bit of a shock going back when it happens. Yeah, it sure have, is. Have you gotten a haircut? No, I'm actually getting my first haircut tomorrow. Um, Get out. Yeah, which I'm super excited about. Um, but I haven't had a haircut in six months. My I did sit down with my wife once for a haircut. And she was very trepidatious because I'm pretty precious <laughs> about my hair. I sat in the chair for about an hour and she was the waving the scissors over me. And I thought we were making progress. <laughs> and we both got up when I was complete to look. Um, and we looked at the spot where the haircut was happening. And we couldn't find a single hair that she had cut. I think out of fear, she just was waving the, the scissors vaguely <laughs> in the direction of my head. But didn't actually have the courage to to cut any hair. So well, I destroyed my husband's hair. I like <laughs> I tried cutting it a few weeks ago, and I totally messed it up. So he just shaved it off. <laughs> so at least yeah. he was more careful than I. That was her fear, and I, and I think maybe I was like too um, too insecure and vain to uh, she knew to take that chance. So <laughs> she was smart. See, I I've really gone for it, and I I too I remember getting a haircut six months months ago to like like february 14th weekend and i haven't gotten one since and you know what i'm i'm just really embracing it at this point <laughs> yeah so, just letting it go letting it go wild i i'm enjoying it i don't know that everybody else is but i'm enjoying it i guess that's <laughs> the, the important thing in this case so that's all that um, matters. So that's all that matters. what's what's the most unexpected thing you ordered uh during lockdown <sighs> let's see i mean at the outset i i um 
I ordered a, a ton of like freeze dried food products and a real apocalyptic yeah um, uh, uh, fear uh, about the fear. But um, so that you know, I've ordered like personal workout gear. Trying to think of other things that I may have ordered that was uh, unexpected. Oh, I, there's a lot of things I ordered that I then returned because, you know, I have nothing but time. So I ordered a trampoline, then did some <laughs> internet research for my kid. And then I did some internet research and was like, oh, hyper dangerous. Maybe let's return that. Um, and I ordered a sandbox um, for my kid again because I'm constantly like, how do I get my kid more engagement? And then I returned that because I then read more about like, you know, bugs and upkeep and stuff like that. So there's been a lot of trial and error between me and uh, uh, the e-commerce world. You know, it's funny that you say that too, because we're, we're sitting on like a castle of gluten-free spaghetti boxes here. And <laughs> there are like 20 of them. And I, I, I see them every day. And I don't, I honestly don't quite know what we were thinking, like what, like Stalingrad like scenario I was considering, but we'll, we'll eat them. Right. Everybody point. has their thing. You know, my, my wife's thing was, you know, toilet paper, which is fairly common. That was her obsession. Mine was paper towels. Like we all, we all have our thing. Yours, you guys was uh, gluten-free spaghetti, but yeah. Would you have, have you seen anything crazy on a Zoom call? Because I actually don't think I have in the entire time we've been locked up. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. I've heard stories, right, where somebody's undressing or in the bathroom or does something embarrassing. But I, I haven't seen anything particularly embarrassing. I, I do have my own Zoom call story, um, which is that um, I was doing a Zoom call in the early days. And I was doing it without uh, video, like this call. And I um, and my son was around because we had no we had no childcare in the days and he would and he's four and he's kind of hovering around me. And um, as I was trying to do this conference call with a client um, and if you have little kids, you know, sometimes they just like I'm like, stop. No, don't. Nobody get off data. I'm trying to do a phone call. Go play with your Legos or something. But it was not taking the hint. And at some point he was just pestering me so much physically that I just, and this is what it periodically happens, I just sort of uh, screamed, don't touch my ears. <laughs> Everyone on the conference call was like, what? what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> Diana has a fair amount of experience with this, right? I'm, I'm an expert at hitting mute now on all of these calls. <laughs> right, and right. So like, before this podcast, I, I, so I have a seven-year-old, and um, so I'm hiding in the basement right now. And right before the podcast, I said to him, okay, I'm going in the basement, so please don't come down. I'll come up when I'm done. If you need anything, ask daddy, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I noticed, like, maybe two minutes into the podcast, I heard, mama, mama. And I, like, I was on mute, thankfully. <laughs> it would have just made the podcast more charming. I mean, That's right. There's, there's no shame in it. There's no shame in it. <laughs> <laughs> Diana, let's let's uh, let's quickly go through the news of the week, and John, feel free to chime in as much or as little as you want to. But I think the big general news, and there are some communications angles to this too, is the Kamala Harris rollout, uh, which, after a long period of expectations and all sorts of stories in the political press about whether the process was taking too long or whether it was just too thorough. Uh, Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as his running mate this week. And my thoughts on it, Diana, before I kick it over to you, are just that I think the rollout went pretty seamlessly. I think that if you were 
a Democrat, you'd have to be pretty happy with it at this point. Yeah. Um, it was also kind of remarkable how leak free it was. Yes. Um, you know, nobody scooped the news uh, and Biden's campaign broke the news, I think, with a campaign text. So that was kind of amazing. Um, and uh, during the, the first appearance, their first appearance as running mates, um, you know, that, that seemed to go well. Um, they both shared just sharp criticisms of Trump's handling of coronavirus and the economic crisis. Uh, Biden raised 26 million in a day after picking Harris, um, and there was 150,000 first-time donors as part of that cash haul. That's interesting. Pretty yeah. remarkable. Pretty remarkable. And I, I think the point you made about how it was a leak-free rollout—you um, know—that they broke the news themselves with a, a text message to supporters—is is really impressive in this day and age because you know everything leaks now. And so it, yeah. it's impressive they kept that to themselves as long as they did. Um, you know, one some... thing that I found interesting about it was um, just to the Diana's point about how well um, executed the rollout was. I, I feel like that's something they've both done really well so far. It just feels like a very like their me- I think their implicit message is just professionalism, competence, seriousness. Like even the way they were dressed when they came out, they both looked really sharply dressed, matching mask, very sort of crisp movements, very, very purposeful. And I, I actually feel like in some ways it's been kind of a brilliant campaign tactic. Like, let's just let's just be really buttoned up um, mm-hmm. and really professional and people are going to are going to want it. Yeah, I agree with that, too. And I, I think there's also I mean, there's a, an interesting generational aspect uh, to this as well. But one thing I've I've kind of enjoyed seeing it's a tidbit with this too is that is that her husband seems to be having the time of his life with this rollout he looks he looks like he's really enjoying the whole process so good for him i'm amid all of the stress of it um okay so there was there was some controversy not related to the campaign itself but that one of uh harris's former spokespeople works for twitter now and was in a was wrongly blamed uh for what some people saw as censorship on the platform, right, Diana? Exactly, yeah. So um, the National Review published a story on Wednesday this week um, stating that Nick Pasilio, um is now, and this is what ha- what they said, they said he is now in charge of deciding what the President of the United States can and can't say on Twitter. So Twitter's comms team did not take this lightly. Um, They all were very vocal on Twitter um, in response to this article. Uh, Twitter's VP of Global Communications, Brandon Borman, tweeted that the article was untrue. He said he was disappointed that the publication never called Twitter to fact check. And then he also pinned a tweet to his own profile just saying, just to make this clear, Spokespeople at Twitter don't make enforcement decisions. They aren't involved in the review process. They share the decisions with the public and answer questions. Um, And then former White House Press Secretary Ari Flesher tweeted the story as well. Um, And then Twitter's Global Partnership Solutions lead Lara Cohen replied to him directly explaining that Pasilio doesn't make policy changes. And she said she would expect communications professionals to check stories like this before sharing them so broadly. 
And then even um, Twitter alum, Brielle Villablanca, who is now at Twitch, um, she joined the conversation and she called the article stupid and shameful <laughs> that it was dangerous to Pasilio, you know, the fact that they had put him in like the spotlight in this way. Um, and then so the National Review, actually, they did update the article and they changed the word deciding to announcing in terms of, you know, his his role's involvement in these kind of things. So well, look, good for good for them for updating, but it that is kind of stupid and shameful. I mean, you know, especially reporters who work with communications people all the time know for a fact that you know they're they're pitching or they're monitoring or they're doing other things, but they're not. They're usually not ultimately the decision makers, especially on something like social media enforcement. Absolutely, yeah. Right, right. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Peloton restructuring that happened this week. Sure. Um, so this story was actually by Thomas Moore. Um, this was this happened last week, I believe. Um, Peloton reorganized its marketing function. So Dara Treseder has been named to the newly created role of SVP and head of global marketing and communications. And the company also promoted Karina Kogan, uh, who is SVP and GM of digital to SVP and head of global product marketing. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Whenever I read or edit a story about Peloton and marketing, I cannot get away from my brain going back to that Twitter uh, rampage that that guy went on just, just making fun of their, you know, just poking fun at their ads and, you know, the, the two nice locations and, and all of that. What was that? It was about a year or two ago, wasn't it? They had a few, they've had a few incidents where they've been the subject of mockery. But um, you know what? They took it, they took it with a grain of salt, didn't they? They did. And I feel like they really like bounced back from like the Peloton mom thing back at, was that at Christmas time? I feel yeah. Like yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I think it was within the it's, year. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels like a hundred. It feels years. like uh, yeah, another life ago. <laughs> it does. But I feel like right now, especially amid the pandemic, it's uh people are turning to Peloton to help pass the time. So yes, and do you think for this sure. move represents a sort of a little bit of a cleaning of the house? Like there was something wrong with it with the team in the sense that they were as a, a tone deafness. Um, and they felt like they needed to, you know, update their approach a little, create a team that's a bit more nimble. Very possible. I mean, it it makes sense, I guess, after the past year. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's a changing company, too, and a, a growing company. So it's... Yeah, they have new brands. You know, that's true. They may they may just be messing with the structure a bit too. Okay, so John, I really want to get your point of view on this this last topic that Diana is going to bring up about uh, Mr. Peanut or Mr. Peanut Jr. or whoever he is now, legally able to drink Mr. Peanut Kid. Um, I feel so bad for Mr. Peanut this year. Um, so so yeah, so the latest Mr. Peanut news. Um, you have to keep up with the Mr. Peanut stuff because he's growing very quickly. Um, as you all remember, during the Super Bowl, he he became baby nut. Um, and then now he is already 21, apparently, and his new name is Peanut Jr. Um, and 
planters had laid this whole like celebration plan for his 21st birthday. Um, this week, they like basically announced that he was now Peanut Junior. They launched a campaign to give fans who had or will have a birthday in quarantine $2,100 in cash delivered to their doorstep by the Nutmobile. Um, and, you know, they're doing this whole thing around that. But I wasn't even aware there was a Nutmobile. Like, I know the <laughs> Wienermobile, but I didn't, I was not aware of the, the That's Nutmobile. That's a really good point. How many, like, weird mobiles are there? So, um, but yeah, so they, they, the reaction to this definitely must have been unexpected to planters. Um, suddenly, block Mr. Peanut, the block Mr. Peanut hashtag started trending. And Which is it, a little harsh. It's really harsh. It, it's, He's the victim I, here. I will say, though, I, I felt like it was somewhat deserved. I, I, I will give you my perspective on it, which is the campaign felt so empty, so, like, out of touch. You know, it, yeah. it, uh, funny without any, you know, but trying to talk about life and death and, uh, you know, you know, all these sort of hardcore things, but in a way that just felt vacuous and empty. And I think in light of covid and blm and just like what an incredible year it has been it just felt i i just think people there's a reason people turned on it and i was wholeheartedly behind it i should say a uh, full disclosure i've always had a bit of a a, a love hate relationship with vayner meteor and gary gary vayner mostly born of jealousy because uh, he does so many things so well that i, I wish i could do well um, so that might color my perspective on the Mr. Peanut campaign, but certainly it's yeah, really so. hard right now in terms of like what's okay in terms of like being jokey with a campaign and what's not. And yeah, I feel like cheap. some campaigns have been fine and others have not been well received. And there seems almost to be like no rhyme or reason for what passes. Like th this, the block Mr. Peanut thing, this seems to have happened like out of no where like it was just this youtuber mr sunday movies yeah he started this hashtag and he just said um he just wanted to wake up to a world where block mr peanut was trending and he was just like i don't like i don't like mr peanut and for and some he did <laughs> and all his all his dreams of self-fulfilling yeah and, and like i mean a lot of this the tweet went viral for some reason and people started really blocking the account it looks like people were sharing screenshots mm -hmm. proving they had done it um so yeah to, I, to, to your point about feeling out what's appropriate you know we're talking about the the mr peanut super bowl ad which itself was controversial because it happened uh, right after Kobe Bryant died. And remember, yeah. there were all these calls for them to pull the campaign back. But it just, it's one of those things that goes to show that that's something that happened seven to eight months ago now. I, I, it could have happened two years ago. So so much has just passed in, in that time. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. So, all right, um, John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Just a few programming notes. Um, if you're having deja vu, it's because uh, the PR Week Awards 2020 just took place. But uh, the next round of the PR Week Awards US, the PR Week Awards US 2021, which are scheduled for March, uh, are now open. So make sure to get your work in soon. And mid-October is going to be busy for us because that is going to be the time of PR Decoded, which is happening virtually this year from October 13th to 15th. And the Purpose Awards are going to be a part of that on October 
14th. So again, John, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. We really appreciate it. Diana, thank you for coming on and, po- uh, and co-hosting. Thank again, you. appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and we'll, yeah, and we'll see you next week on the PR Week.